Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Gaslighting is the process of mentally manipulating a person to a point that they question the very reality they thought they were sure of, which then allows the gas lighter to substitute a different reality, which usually isn't reality at all. I think we can all agree that this is never done with good intentions in mind. Welcome to Earth 2022. On today's episode, we'll learn that we'd be crazy to do what they told us. Just do what they tell you. Then we'll get some great advice that won't help anything at all. And finally, we're going to see how we're all safer when we do things that absolutely won't make us safer. So, take some time to recharge your batteries, get ready to take some notes that you'll never use, and finally, do you have a security system or like a gun or a mean-sounding dog or anything? Yeah, you may want to get some or, or all of those because it's time to get it on. What? No, here we go. I've never said that. <laughs> you must be crazy. Are you thinking of a different podcast? Why would I ever say, here we go? Everyone is busy these days. It seems like motion is the in thing right now. Everyone is doing everything, everywhere, all the time. We've created a culture of nonstop doing. It used to be that taking a vacation from work meant you'd pack up the family truckster, head out on the road, reach your destination, and begin to just wear yourself down trying to fit in as many unique experiences or get all the sun you can or catch every fish in the lake. And now, I don't know about you, but the idea of taking a few days off and just being home, sleep in, catch up on some nagging projects, watch a little TV, I mean, that has so much appeal right now. But in our Current culture, time is money. If you snooze, you lose. The early bird catches the worm. Once, twice, three times a lady. But I think I went too far there. Forget the last one. So with that fairly obvious, admittedly gloomy background laid out before us, what would it mean to you if you could take your world and by only spending a lot of money, you could add massive inconvenience and inefficiency as well as unreliability and continually shifting rules and after the initial purchase price, you'd be allowed to pay an ever-increasing monthly fee until you die. What, not sold on that? Okay. Drive a hard bargain. Keep in mind, I only offer this to absolutely everyone that I offer it to. How about I throw in, for free, a false sense of self-importance that gradually fades into a realization that you've been taken for a ride? Yeah, I, I thought that would seal the deal. It's worked on millions of people so far. Think I'm crazy? Found on The Verge via MSN.com headline, Charging your EV at night is about to become more expensive. The key takeaway for me is that I have multiple vehicles right now. Do I just stick it out with these? Or do I replace one with another internal combustion engined car, either new or very low miles? And if I do that, when would I do that? You know, in order to outlast the electric vehicle insanity, which will prove out the absolute disaster inherent in the technology and the lack of capability 
the inadequate power grid, the massive inconvenience, and the asinine worldview of our elected overlords thinking they can just say it, and it becomes as they've commanded. Now, I know I'm an old, bitter, get-off-my-lawn dinosaur that refuses to give up my god, my guns, or my internal combustion engine that ironically runs on old, probably bitter, liquid dinosaurs. There are practically infinity reasons for all of us to buy an electric vehicle. In fact, website myev.com asks the question, why electric? And before I'm allowed to answer, they say, quote, electric makes sense. Oh. Well, I like sense and the making of it. So let's see some of the infinity reasons I alluded to just a moment ago. Number one, electric vehicles are more affordable to run. They say that we all know EVs cost more than gas cars up front, but you make that up in spades over time because electricity is practically free. They said that, quote, the average driver will save between $4,000 and $5,000 in fuel costs over the course of five years. Oh, okay. So $800 to $1,000 a year in just pure savings. Well, that'll make up for the difference in purchase cost in, uh, what, only 50 years or so? I mean, where do I sign? Number two, EVs have lower maintenance costs. Well, okay, yes and no. I mean, the general annual maintenance is likely cheaper, and it's theoretically more reliable because there are less moving parts. So as long as all that electrical, electronical stuff is reliable, it should be okay. That said, when it comes time to replace a battery, and eventually they'll all need battery replacements, you'll likely lose all of that maintenance savings in one shot. My Mazda 3 that I bought new now has over 110,000 miles, has cost me probably no more than maybe $500 a year in maintenance. And that's estimating high. And this is one car out of the ones I have that I actually bring to the dealer to just let them do the checks and the oil changes because why not, right? If the engine and transmission happen to blow tomorrow, if I added everything up, I'm still ahead of a single battery change. And number three, tax incentives can reduce the purchase price. Okay, well, yeah, that is true. I don't think we should call taxpayer-funded government welfare programs a, a positive, though. Maybe that's just me. Number four, range is a non-issue, and charging isn't rocket science. So, working backwards, no, charging isn't rocket science, but filling a car at home from a gas can or on the road at a gas pump, that's not really rocket science either. And you never get some sort of an error trying to fill it up. And if the pump is out of service, you, you know, you just kind of roll forward another 10 feet. Problem solved. Plus, you know, time is money, right? Now, as for range being a non-issue, this is what they say, quote, there are a ton of misconceptions around electric vehicles, and the biggest one guilty of slowing down adoption is that you simply can't drive that far. And that's simply not true at all. Depending on the model, many can go over 200 or even 300 miles on a single charge. Okay, that is their best sell. I, I don't even know what to do with that. I mean, what an idiotic statement devoid of facts and lacking, really, the rest of the story. Number five, skip the gas station. 
Quote, you know how easy it is to charge your cell phone? That's how easy it is to charge an electric vehicle. Really? You simply plug it in at home and forget about it. No more lines, waiting, dirty pumps, and fumes. Wake up to a fully charged car and be on your way. The peace of mind and time savings are priceless. Okay. Okay, first. Well, if there's a line at the gas station, I can either wait you know, a few minutes, or drive a block down and go to the next one. Now, I don't know what 1950s Hicktown gas station they're going to, but the pumps aren't dirty. I mean, unless you're just a snowflake, then okay, maybe. And fumes? Fumes. That's one of the best parts of filling up. I mean, tell me you haven't given your hand just a little sniff after filling up. That's not actually fumes, though. That's just kind of gas. As for fumes... What fumes? Tell me the last time you were overcome with fumes from filling up your tank. And, and finally, we'll get back to our article in question in a moment, but one of the big selling points, charge while you sleep. Well, apparently that point is in jeopardy. Now let's move on. Uh, number six, there are public chargers everywhere. Just, just everywhere. Look, I mean, look to your right. Public chargers turn to your left. More chargers, they're everywhere. But, um... But no, no. In a 50-mile stretch of a main highway between two of the main cities in West Virginia, of which I lie about halfway between, at midnight, while I'm doing this research, I see that there are two Tesla superchargers with eight plugs each, plus two more Level 2 stations with Tesla plugs for an additional four plugs, and then 13 generic Level 2 chargers with 26 total plugs, and one at the airport with 10 plugs, and I see a total of five plugs that are actually online right at this moment. So, I mean, um, everywhere? I, no. And if you compare it to gas stations and gas pumps, um, EV chargers are practically non-existent. Uh, number seven, you're helping the environment. Uh-huh. Yeah. Not really, though. You, you, you're not really, though. Number eight, you help save humanity. <sighs> Number nine, even better with solar panels. Quote, you can basically drive for free. <sighs> Number 10, EVs are generally safer. Okay, they literally have to adhere to the same impact and rollover standards. So I, I don't know how they're generally safer. 11, electric vehicles are just cooler. So they've never ridden in a classic car, apparently, or a muscle car, or a convertible, or a jack truck, or a sleeper at a stoplight. I mean, need I go on? I just get the feeling that uh, that whoever wrote this and I would not get along so good. Number 12, a smoother, more quiet ride. Well, okay, smoother depends on the vehicle. I've seen various reviews. I'll give them more quiet, though. They got me on that one. Number 13, you may be entitled to additional privileges. <laughs> Ooh, special parking spaces for green cars will save you from walking, you know, just multiple feet in order to get into, uh, into a place. Now, how can you deny getting one? And number 14, stand out from the crowd. Oh, oh yes, you will. I agree, but generally not for the reasons that they say. So going through these ironclad selling points, when you remove those that appeal to ego and those that are highly subjective, when you fill in the cleverly missing context in others, you really only get to a few potential theoretically plausible practical selling points. 
For instance, at this point in time, in most places, for most EVs, they're cheaper than gas on a per mile basis. Although carscoops.com from a few days ago reported that the UK EV charging has risen 42% in recent days, you know, due to their increasing fuel and electricity costs, and that the cost to fuel up and charge up are quickly approaching parity. If we continue on our current path in the U.S. of, you know, not being energy independent while shutting down power plants and shoving everything toward that sweet, cheap, plentiful electricity, what do you think is going to happen here? I mean, even electricity is supply and demand, you know, until the entire national grid, at least, turns into molten copper from what we're trying to do to it. In addition to the lower cost per mile, for now, the other plausible selling points are that you can charge at home overnight, and it will have a more quiet ride, and there are some tax and parking perks, also for now. And this is pretty much what you're left with when you eliminate the other fluffery that myev.com was trying to sell you. Easily, the largest selling point is it being cheaper. The charging overnight is pretty much icing on the cake as you can save even more and you can fill up while you sleep if you have the right level charger as plugging it into the wall will generally take two to three days to charge fully, <laughs> at least. Unfortunately, according to The Verge, charging at night, it's not going to be uh, what you want to do anymore. So they start by acknowledging the perk of charging as you slumber, and then the curveball, quote, But that's about to change as more people buy EVs and the demand for overnight charging begins to rise, according to a new study published today. Oh, well, what do you know about that, huh? Who could have? could have foreseen. So this was a Stanford University study published in Nature Energy, you know, so you know it's good. Well, their study said, and, and try to follow the logic here, it's, it's fairly complex, as EV ownership increases, electricity demand will, will increase. Okay, now they said it more science-y, all right? They said that increased ownership could see peak demand increase by 25% by 2035, as much as 50% increase if every car was a plug-in-style electric car. Quote, more demand translates into higher prices, which means the glory days of cheap overnight charging may be coming to an end. And then my most favoritist paragraphs in the entire article... Quote, to better prepare for a future with more EVs, these study's authors recommend vehicle owners do more daytime charging, either at work or at public charging stations. This becomes especially important as more renewable sources of power generation come online, including solar and wind power. Quote, in the future grid with higher renewable generation, timing is more important and net demand tells a very different story than total demand. The study reads, quote, shifting drivers from home to daytime charging improves all metrics of grid impact, including ramping, use of non-fossil fuel generation, storage requirements, and emissions. This insight is robust across varying levels of EV adoption. And then they do some blah, blah, blah in the article about Save the Planet and Biden funneling money and infrastructure is terrible. You know, pretty much the norm. So let me ask this. Although their models are uh, robust across varying levels of EV adoption, um, what levels would those be? 
And, and what are the assumptions in their models? When COVID was rumored to get bad, right at the beginning, and everyone ran to get uh, toilet paper that for some reason nobody understands to this day, if you were to watch the store shelves first, all the name brand stuff would go. Then the good but not name brand stuff would go. And then finally, the construction grade but sandpaper, you know, the El Cheapo stuff, that was taken. If we're told to charge at night, but that's going to cause peak demand issues, what does it do to move the demand to the day? Now, I know they're figuring in at least more solar power, just, you know, flooding the grid. That's a joke in itself, however. But by shifting demand, all you do is shift the pressure. The problem that's not being addressed is the massive amount of demand, the massive extended period of demand, the grid that has no chance based on design to be able to reliably feed this demand, and the available max generation capacity being woefully inadequate to meet the demand. If it took 10 minutes to fill up a battery versus 45 minutes or 4 hours or 8 hours or more, then the grid could at least, I think, theoretically have a better chance to handle the load because you wouldn't have a massive number of cars sucking down the juice at the same time. They'd be coming on and off the grid at a rapid pace. But that's not what happens, which is why the overnight charging was what everyone was told to do. Do it when other electrical demand is low. So let's say we move all that charging demand to the day when people are working. You know, working in buildings and facilities that use lights and AC and heat and computers and machines, all taking electricity. I say again, what assumptions are they using in their models? Because there ain't no way they're bringing that much solar online. I'd say probably never will they bring that much solar online, at least not in my lifetime, assuming my dietary and physical activity life choices don't take me out early. So look. Whatever happened to critical thinking, to logical problem solving, to wisdom? How can we have a pocket that's grossly overflowing with stuff, take it all out of that pocket and put it in a very slightly larger pocket and think it'll be okay? Beyond that, how can those pushing this EV nightmare believe that people will be willing to pay more for less range, more inconvenience, and now mandated scheduled charge times? And trust me, that will happen. If you've ever lived in a snow state, you've likely experienced alternate side parking. On odd days, you park on this side, even days on that side, and that way plows can do their thing. We're going to have mandatory schedules like uh, last names starting with E can charge from 4 to 6 a.m. on even days or something like that, and probably worse than that. Proverbs 16.16 16 says, How much better to get wisdom than gold, to get insight rather than silver? Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. And Proverbs 13.10 says, Where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Notice that the counter to wisdom is pride, not foolishness or stupidity. Now, I've known some people that would be overlooked by The Verge or by Stanford researchers, by our political overlords, that have had more wisdom in their little finger than all of those others combined. I think I've mentioned it before, but when I'm involved in interviewing candidates, especially for an engineering, like a reliability engineering type position, if you come in with straight A's, 
that's a red mark against you in my book, not because I'm bitter that you're collegiately smarter than me. I, I don't care about that. Don't take much to eclipse me there. But because I need to know, can you think? Can you think critically? Can you think logically? Do you have real world street smarts in addition to the book smarts that you clearly have? I learned early on in my college co-op days and my first job and my new career that when it comes to designing something, I'm the dumbest guy in the room. I may be able to do the calculations and run Excel and do the CAD drawings and write the reports. I may be able to do those well. I may even have some good ideas and designs, but the guys with the wisdom are the machinists, the mechanics, the electricians, the operators. The wisest thing I can do is to go to those guys and ask for their wisdom. Unfortunately, what we're dealing with is a number of ego-driven, arrogant individuals, both young and old, that have never asked for help, never asked for other opinions, have never lived or worked in the real world, just the political world or the university-based theoretical world, neither of which has ever challenged their determination of what must be the truth. We're dealing with a lot of people that live in a world of subjective truth, where their truth is the truth. So if they believe we can go all EVs with no repercussions, well, it must be true. If they believe we can just shuffle charging times and it'll all work great, well, it must be true. If they believe man-caused climate change is real and EVs will fix it, yeah, it must be true. The reality is, this EV push is starting to crumble before it even gets started. The question is, will enough people take notice? Will enough people take action? Now, I've said before, I have no problem with EVs. If you want one, buy one. There are more choices popping up, and they do have certain uses. If it fits your lifestyle, do what you want. I don't care. I have a problem with a mandate based on foolishness and arrogance. Our country is made up of a wide variety of people. We need to stop electing just that small demographic of people into power that have the alleged book smarts, the political connections, the smooth talk. We need to pick wise individuals and place them into office. And although I don't advocate for a theocracy because we'd screw it up, two-thirds of the American population claim to be Christian. We should be the largest voting block out there. We should be voting in men and women with wisdom, with humility. But maybe Christians aren't all as wise as they should be either. Have you been hearing the term evidence-based being thrown around a lot lately? I know I have. I can't pinpoint exactly where, but I know I have. And as I was looking through the news, as is my custom and my burden, I came across our article in question from thehill.com headline, Who Releases New Guidelines for Mental Health in the Workplace? So there were a couple things that caught my eye on this one. One was the WHO, you know, the World Health Organization. And I'll be honest, this should be eliminated. It's, it's just a political organization. It's not a health organization anymore. The other thing that caught my eye was a half male, half female. No, seriously, this was a drawing and the right half of, was a man holding a laptop. The, the left was a woman in a yoga outfit. Well, this conglomeration caught my eye and they're sitting in the lotus position with the female having her eye closed, holding a flower between her finger and thumb and the Gayan Mudra, I don't know how you pronounce that, or the wisdom seal orientation, you know, the Buddha position of meditation. Well, I saw that picture and thought, huh, well, well, that's not a good thing as, you know, 
the meditation part of yoga, the Buddhist practice of meditation, is actually just a worship of false gods, thus being a satanic practice at its core. And no, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing the stretches, and I also don't think that you can do Christian yoga, as the root of the meditation is to clear your mind of all things and just be present in the moment, which is a 180-degree opposite view of what meditation is described as in the Bible. But looking at the story at a glance bullet points, which I'll be honest, (laughs) I greatly appreciate those, the second one down says, quote, the agency has released new guidelines for mental health at work with evidence-based recommendations for organizations and individuals. And that's when I was thinking, I've seen this term a lot lately. So what exactly is this? And as I don't trust anything coming from any governmental type entity anymore, my immediate thought is, this probably isn't really good. So I'll jump back over to that in a moment, but let's take a look at this brief article first, and then we'll go from there. So walk with me, will you? The World Health Organization did a study, so you know that this will work out well just for everyone. And in this study, they found that a full, quote, 15% of working age adults have a mental disorder at any point in time. Now, keep in mind, when they use terms like mental disorder, there is a very specific definition behind it, unlike how most of you and definitely I use a term like mental disorder. Now, per the glossary in their report, mental disorder is defined as, quote, as defined by the ICD-11, mental disorders are syndromes characterized by clinically significant disturbance in an individual's cognition, emotional regulation, or behavior that reflects a dysfunction in the psychological, biological, or developmental processes that underlie mental and behavioral functioning. These disturbances are usually associated with distress or impairment in personal, family, social, educational, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. So the ICD-11, just FYI, is the 11th revision of the International Classification of Diseases. Per the WHO, this quote provides a common language that allows health professionals to share standardized information across the world. The 11th revision contains around 17,000 unique codes, more than 120,000 codable terms, and is now entirely digital. I just have to wonder, 17,000 codes. How is this thing even remotely close to usable? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Maybe we'll look at that later sometime. Just note that terms like clinically significant disturbance and dysfunction in the mental processes and disturbances, those terms mean things. Just know that in the United States, not fully dictated by the WHO, Yet, the push is to make mental disorders part of denials for obtaining a firearm, for example. And the definition is being pushed down to the point of a child going to a counselor for a few weeks, many years prior to them wanting to purchase a gun. Then think of these COVID lockdowns and how swamped the counselors, psychiatrists, and psychologists were during this time. It's not conspiracy to add two and two and to come up with four. And just saying. 
So the goal of this report was to improve mental health, helping people to participate and thrive in work. And remember, this is using evidence-based recommendations. They've broken these recommendations down to those for managers as a whole and those for workers as a whole and those for individuals. And they break down those categories and they break down the breakdown and they break them down some more and whatever. What they want to do is address people that do boring work or seemingly menial tasks, as well as they say, quote, sociodemographic groups. And I think we probably have a good idea of what that means. And that's about the gist of the article. I mean, seriously, it didn't really say much. Now, the report, the actual study and report, that's a mere 134 pages. And obviously, I read every single word of the words I read. And out of the words I did read, this study and report is garbage. I mean, look, I know I come off as kind of cynical every now and again, but seriously, this is terrible. The brief scanning I did of the recommendations are just pointless. The key remarks could be boiled down to stressful jobs could cause stress, and that stress could be heightened by factors known to heighten stress. Now, I mean, I'm not joking. Then they comment on the evidence that they're basing their revelations from, and they say that, quote, all extracted evidence was one of very low certainty except where otherwise indicated. Well, if the evidence is terrible, could this really be called an evidence-based study resulting in evidence-based recommendations? But as I suspected, the term evidence-based means about as much as peer-reviewed at this point. In many, if not most cases, something sporting the peer-reviewed classification simply means that a handful of people agreed, for likely some lucrative reason, to sign their name to it. This was brought to light in 2018, in fact, four years to the day that I'm writing this review, when 20 fake papers on things such as dog rape culture, or a conceptual penis, or a simple reprint of Mein Kampf were all peer-reviewed and passed along to these academic journals without anyone questioning or even reading these alleged studies. Now, as for their recommendations... We find some real gems here. First, make work better. I mean, I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but that's basically what they said. Next, perform training. And, and can I just add, shoving more training on employees who don't want it and don't have time for it is a mental health negative almost universally. Next, use mindfulness, which is Buddhist meditation. If your kid is in school being told to take a mindfulness break or being told to clear their minds, focus on the now. You might want to go explain to the teacher that this is not a thing that's going to be done. See, this is a satanic practice and a very dangerous practice. You know, oh, it calms kids down. You know, we hear that argued all the time. Yes, yeah, so would liquor. And just because you get the result you're looking for doesn't mean the method is positive. And then the last recommendation, really, when you boil them down, is allow some leisurely physical activity time, you know, like various exercise methods or yoga. And I kid you not, every one of the recommendations can pretty neatly fit into these few points. So they give their ranking of the recommendations based on two different points, the level of the recommendation and the confidence of the evidence. Now, out of all the recommendations, 15 total, there were two 
that have a moderate certainty of the evidence. And both of these were for training recommendations for managers. All the others have either a low or a very low certainty, meaning that their recommendations are based on essentially nothing. Likewise, only four were classed as strong recommendations. All the others are conditional. So when they state in the report, quote, these guidelines provide evidence-based recommendations on interventions that can be implemented to better prevent, protect, and promote and support the mental health of workers. They don't really mean that. The evidence is junk. Their study has done nothing. And to be honest, what they recommended has already been known for at least a couple decades, as I remember these same kinds of programs and trainings from back when I started my career. And yet, they call it evidence-based and pass it off as new. As for what exactly evidence-based means, well, it basically comes down to algorithmic recommendations based on data. Sort of. So, it seems that what is supposed to be done is that data is collected from various methods, and each method has its own classification of how accurate and meaningful and useful the data is. But whatever data you have gets fed into the program of your choice, where the data is analyzed, various outcomes are mathematically determined, as well as the probability of each outcome, then more math to determine the ways of limiting or addressing or mitigating the various outcomes, then more math to determine risk versus reward of each outcome. All of these are ranked for probability, and the evidence-based recommendation is spit out. And that's what we're supposed to do, because computers and math. Now, I didn't see where this was done via artificial intelligence, but how long will it be before AI takes this and just tells us what to think and do? I mean, I guarantee that this evidence-based stuff is nothing but a precursor to AI-based recommendations. Now, as I was looking up the term, as I started to understand what it meant, and that when they say data, it really doesn't mean what you and I would think of as data. It means whatever you have or not. Just make some assumptions if you don't have data. It really don't matter. I started wondering about our latest medical catastrophe, the COVID blood clotting injection, playfully termed the jab. Would you believe me if I said that the FDA used evidence-based analysis when approving the various vaccines for emergency use authorization? Yeah, see, I have a question. What was their data set that they fed into the evidence-based program? Well, as you dig a little bit more, it appears that they did this process um, completely backwards. See, if you believe in an evidence-based method, you should get the data first and then set about analyzing it. But it appears that what the FDA did is figure out what the outcome of the program had to say in order for the FDA to authorize the shots. Then they trial and errored data, assumed data, back into their program of choice to figure out what data would have to look like in order to fit their desired outcome. And then they told the various manufacturers what the data would have to look like in order for the result to be what was needed for the authorization. Now, is it just me, or does this sound maybe just a little sketchy? They determined safety, efficacy, side effects, long-term safety, all based on very little evidence and data, with the manufacturers having the key to the test. And remember, evidence-based recommendations 
really only look to see if the benefit outweighs the risk. Just think about that. Now, I'm not saying all of these people, organizations, and manufacturers lied. I'm just saying that they wouldn't know the truth if it ran up behind them, bit them right on the tuchus, and then ran off maniacally laughing. I'm not going to go into the theological side of this point, as I've covered this issue multiple times. Just go back and look for it. But the bottom line is we need to be people of logic, wisdom, common sense, and simple thought. We are being conditioned to stop thinking. In fact, we're being told to just let computers tell us what to do, which will soon just be AI telling us what to do. And computers and AI, regardless of what people want us to believe, they will tell us exactly what the programmer wants them to. If they program the data analysis systems correctly or feed the programmed AI systems the right data, they'll get the right thing to tell us. And we're seeing the result of this kind of process with the dangerous and deadly side effects of the vaccine. But what does everyone say that ends up being quadruple shot and catches COVID still? Hey, at least I had the shot. It would have been much worse. Risk versus reward, right? Just repeat what the evidence-based recommendation tells you to say. There's no way to know if it would have been worse or not. The authorization for the shot was based on nothing. Evidence-based nothing. But we were told to be scared. We were told to demand the vax. We were told to do what we were told. And we were told what to think of those that didn't. And we were told what to say when confronted. As for mental health, I think their study revealed more than they realize. The bottom line is that they have uh, absolutely no answer as to what to do. Make work more fun and or rewarding. Well, not all jobs are like that. Improve the work-life balance by flex time off and working from home. Well, not all jobs are capable of doing that. Get more exercise. Oh, yeah, okay, we've known that for decades. And use Buddhist techniques, you know, thinly disguised as mindfulness. The problem they're having is that they're ignoring the one thing that can actually address emotional issues, the truth only found in the Bible. Why do problems exist? Sin. Read about it in the Bible. How can you make sense of a crazy world? Oh, find out in the Bible. Do I actually matter? Oh, very much so. You'll find out why in the Bible. I feel alone and unloved. You're not, and you're not. Find out the shocking truth in the Bible. I feel like life is meaningless. Oh, it's not. It has great purpose. The Bible has the answers. My job seems pointless. Well, you're not working for the right being. The Bible tells me so. There is no man-made psychological manual. There's no amount of exercise or godless meditation. There are no other religions that can answer these questions. There's only one source of answers. There's only one source of true truth. Only one worldview that acts like the secret decoder ring as to why the world is like it is. But this worldview also comes with the requirement to bend the knee, to humble yourself, to admit that we are a creature. We're not the creator and that we're selfish, hateful, angry, sinful people that are desperately in need of a savior, and also that we are subject to a sovereign king, that we're not the ultimate being, and with that, there are rules, and there are consequences, and humans don't want that. Generally, we refuse to believe that life is actually better under the rule of a king, perfect or otherwise. So the who isn't unique in this. About every organization, about every company, has tried to analyze humanity and tried to figure out how to make work and work life and life better. I'll choose to believe that for the most part, 
their motives are good, that they seriously see an issue and want to address the problem. But they refuse to look at the one thing that can actually offer mankind, and includes employees, true answers, true hope, true salvation. What would our world look like if instead of giving low-confidence, quasi-evidence-based recommendations of training and meditation, they offered biblical counseling? But until that happens, which I'm sure is coming very soon, it's up to you and I. We need to show the lost, hurting, dying, hopeless world the only true path to joy, hope, love, and peace. Look out behind you. Your safety is most definitely in great potential of being in peril. That's what I'd say if it wasn't for the literal utopia of peace and security that we find ourselves in today. And we all know who we have to thank for the tranquility and calm that simply pervades our lives, right? Welcome back to our look at the Democrat Party platform. This is episode four, where we're going to take a look at their view of protecting communities and building trust by reforming our criminal justice system. (laughs) Oh, let's dive in. Now, I'll be honest. They finally say something I agree with right off the bat. Quote, our criminal justice system is failing to keep communities safe and failing to deliver justice. Wow. Okay, maybe they'll actually... Oh, no, okay. Turns out that although America is the land of the free, as they remind us, quote, more of our people are behind bars per capita than anywhere else in the world. Instead of making evidence-based investments in education, jobs, healthcare, and housing that are proven to keep communities safe and prevent crime from occurring in the first place, our system has criminalized poverty, over-policed and underserved black and Latino communities, and cut public services. Instead of offering the incarcerated the opportunity to turn their lives around, our prisons are overcrowded and continue to rely on inhumane methods of punishment. Instead of treating those who have served their time as full citizens upon their return to society, too many of our laws continue to punish the formerly incarcerated, erecting barriers to housing, employment, and voting rights for millions of Americans. (sighs) I mean, is any of that true? I mean, Okay, yeah, from what I can find, the United States does have the highest incarceration rate per capita of any country. And then the problem comes in. The Democrats believe this is because, uh, what do you know, because we're not spending enough money. (laughs) What are the odds? Now, one thing we can take away from their entire platform is that if only the Republicans would agree to spend, you know, just a few pennies, just pry open their wallets a little bit, this whole thing would be fixed. The only thing needed to fix everything is money. And since the Republicans hate you, and especially you that are people of color, they just refuse to spend their hordes of cash, opting instead to swim through their gold coins like Scrooge McDuck. So, we need to spend more on education. Well, I mean, we're, we're already in the top five of all countries with negative results, might I add. We need to spend more on jobs, as long as they're the right kinds of jobs, you know, that use union labor only. We need to spend more on health care rather than letting the private market compete, lowering the cost to everybody. No, no, no. The government must be the monopoly that just fixes everything. We need to spend more on housing because if only everyone could live in government housing, 
we would all just be so happy, and we'd be much, much less, you know, shooty and stabby. But we instead criminalize poverty. I mean, how many times have you looked through the arrest reports in the newspaper and it says arrested for being poor or arrested on suspicion of being poor and so on? We've over-policed and underserved the black and Latino communities. Now, if you ask the law-abiding residents of, say, I don't know, black communities, they'd say that they want a heavy police presence to help keep the community safe. And I only say that because they, they, they have been asked, and that was their answer. And underserved, and also cut services. Huh. Let me ask this. Which party has generally been in majority control of most of the crime-ridden minority communities across the country? And in most cases, they've been that way for decades? If there was only one way for us to know, just some way that we could see who's been in control. Eh, eh, oh, well, it's, it's probably Republicans. I think that's probably fairly clear. As for how we treat our prisoners, for the most part, I would say, I don't know, world class. Uh, in no other country in the world will you hear a joke like, hey, three hots and a cot, you know, meaning three hot meals and a place to sleep. I would say that the United States is the only or one of the very few countries where people actually commit crimes so they can get into the prison system. As for how we treat those that have served their time after they get out, or this thought that we don't allow them to turn their lives around, um, how is their committing crimes, regardless of what the crime is, our, the people that aren't committing crimes, fault? I don't see how we're the ones that are on trial here. Now, I've said before, I am a reliability engineer, and as such, one of my bailiwicks is to perform root cause analyses. What the Democrats are trying to do is say that the root cause of how ex-cons are treated is us. We're all wrong. We've done the wrong thing. But the root cause is actually the fact that they broke the law. If they didn't break the law, they wouldn't interact with cops in a negative situation. They wouldn't be arrested. They wouldn't go to prison. They wouldn't come out and have a difficult time trying to reestablish their lives. You know who doesn't have all of these problems? People who don't break the law. But this is part of the so-called soft racism that just pervades the Democrat Party. It's just, it's infested with this. The Democrats have always been, are now, and will always be massively racist. It is ingrained in their DNA. They've always been the pro-slavery, the anti-civil rights, the pro-genocide of black babies party. Those are literally indisputable facts. In this case, by their very definition of the problem, they've built in the given that blacks and Latinos will just commit crimes. They can't help it. They're black and or Latino. Now, when you start with that being a fact, you know, that blacks and Latinos are basically just mindless animals incapable of living in a civilized society, then of course you'd start to pick around the edges trying to fix all the symptoms and effects rather than address the actual problem, the, the actual cause. But Democrats are here to fix the problem. Or as they say, quote, overhaul the criminal justice system from top to bottom. They state that, quote, 
Police brutality is a stain on the soul of our nation. And they go on to say that millions of people are scared they'll die if they just get pulled over or if they're just standing on a street corner somewhere. They state that it's just unacceptable that black parents have to talk with their children about how to interact with police. So, okay, this is a manufactured issue. The reality is any good parent of any color should be telling their children how to interact with authority figures. That's called being a parent. As for traffic stops, studies of actual data have shown that more blacks are pulled over than whites, but more whites by far are arrested or shot by police in these traffic stops. But if you slice your data just right, yeah, you can make it say what you want, right? When you have to manipulate your data to prove your point, um, you generally call that a lie. Now, as for this fear, where is this fear that they're just going to be shot on the street coming from? Could it possibly be, you know, generational fear that's been pushed for many, many years now? by the fear porn peddlers, you know, the media, the politicians, the activists. When all you're told is that cops will kill your children, when all you see on the media, on the news, is biased reporting and the spinning of half-truths, as well as heavily manipulated data, what do you expect? This is just psychological abuse. It's mental manipulation of an entire demographic of people. And why are they doing this? Votes. I mean, this, my friends, is evil. It's psychotic. So they throw out some statements without explaining any of the data. They, they claim the problems are with the police, you know, from racism to brutality, lack of training. Look, it's not the criminal's fault. They want more counselors in schools, more social workers, more psychologists, all in the schools because that'll fix the problem. They propose more strict rules for cops with more robust punishment for the police force, less severe penalties for poor children that break the laws. They just don't know no better. They want to limit how the cops can subdue a criminal when they can use deadly force and train them and insist they use, quote, nonviolent tactics, appropriate use of force, implicit bias and peer intervention. And they'll ban racial and religious profiling. Oh, and they'll train and educate everyone in the criminal justice system to, quote, ensure transgender and gender nonconforming people receive fair and equitable treatment in the criminal justice system. Because that's one thing we know that they look for is, can I find that gay guy and let's punish him more? It's apparently time to end the war on drugs as well. And looking around you today, right? I mean, living in the heart of the meth and opioid world myself here, Oh, it sounds like a great plan, uh, but it's not fair because, you know, drugs, it, it imprisons a disproportionate number of blacks and Latinos again. Uh, so what? We don't imprison them? They, they just be able to practice their craft? I mean, that, that doesn't seem like a good idea. And their answer for drug dealers is, um, uh, you'll never guess this one, investment in, quote, jobs, housing, education, <laughs> and my favorite, the arts. Because if there's one thing that will stop a guy from dealing drugs, it's the ability to create a beautiful watercolor painting. I mean, just ask them. 
Now, they'll disallow police forces to purchase surplus military equipment. They'll punish those in the criminal justice system for being meanies. They'll diversify the police departments and force them to become more of a social worker group rather than a law enforcement group. I mean, can't we just all talk it out? They'll decriminalize marijuana. And according to the latest mid to long-term data that's coming in now, oh, that would just work out so very, very well. <laughs> Spoiler, uh, marijuana is not the same as having a drink or a cigarette, uh, just in case you thought that. And just because you choose to break the law and you can't afford to pay your fines, that doesn't mean you're a bad guy. You shouldn't get in trouble just because you ain't got the scratch to pay that fine. You know, the fine that you got for for breaking the law. They'll get rid of mandatory minimum sentences. Rather, just let the judge decide what the punishment should be. That couldn't possibly go wrong, could it? You know, based on what we've seen out of a number of activist judges over recent history. And more diverse judicial appointments. We need that, right? Because let's stop appointing those whiteies. They're just they're just the absolute worst. And they all hate black people. I'm talking about white people in general, not just the judges. All white people just hate black people, except, of course, for the overwhelming number of white men and women, most of them old, that created this platform and keep telling us all how, how evil we are for being white. Here's an interesting statement to open their final paragraph. Quote, Democrats believe in redemption. Huh. And of course, they don't want people to be thrown back in prison, you know, just because they violated the provisions of their parole, you know, broke the law again. And house arrest is mean and criminals should be allowed to vote and do everything again like nothing ever happened. So when you boil this down, their plan is basically to spend a lot of money coddle the criminal rather than punish him, punish those in the criminal justice system, neuter the police, make the system all about race and gender confusion, and then soften the stance on crime at pretty much every level. Now, they didn't overtly say to defund the police, but the only way they can implement these systems and push more social services and less policing is to defund the police. And Wow, are the cities that tried that and the politicians that pushed it just running from that statement, that comment, that idea of defunding the police. <sighs> As the very limited trial runs, we've seen, wow, have they failed. Now, they say they believe in redemption. That's not what they really mean. See, redemption is a biblical concept. It's defined in Easton's Bible Dictionary as, quote, the purchase back of something that had been lost by the payment of a ransom. What the Democrat Party is saying is that by the serving of their time in prison, they've bought back their freedom. Now, to some degree, I'd say that's correct. However, living in a human system, the concept of redemption is not perfect. The Bible tells us to forgive, and I believe that all Christians must come to a point of forgiveness for those that have wronged us. I say Christians, as we have the basis to grant forgiveness— we should have the understanding that the forgiveness given to us is much greater because our crimes are much greater than anything that's ever been done to us on this earth. Now, that said, forgiveness may not always come easy, and it may not always come quickly. And forgiveness in this life doesn't mean that we just let the person off the hook. In other words, I don't believe that we are commanded to forgive and forget, at least not to the point that we allow the criminal to continue to abuse us. So the Democrats may believe that those that have served their time have met full redemption, 
But as humans are not perfect, our laws have certain provisions that may continue to affect them for the rest of their lives because of their crime. For those that are saved, we are redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We have been purchased from sin and death to life in Christ. We are forgiven. 1 John 5.18 says that, quote, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Now, does that mean that if we're saved, we literally don't sin anymore? <laughs> oh, I sure hope not as I look at my life. And Paul had the same conundrum that I and we all have. I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. Oh, wretched man, who will deliver me from this body of death? We are imperfect beings. We sin. We are redeemed through the perfect sacrifice. We are fully forgiven, but we still sin. We struggle with this. In the human system, we have systems like probation and house arrest because although a person served the prescribed time in the prison system, they are still sinners. Some turn their lives around. Others do not. They're not perfectly redeemed because they serve time in jail, and we see this on an all-too-regular basis as criminals are released early or released on a no-cash bond or whatever, and they go back and commit more crimes and more crimes. The criminal justice system is an imperfect copy of the perfect law, justice, and mercy of God. Now, next, just briefly, the idea that we must diversify judicial appointments and police forces, train them in gender bias, train them in implicit bias. Why? Lady Justice wears a blindfold for a reason. The criminal justice system should not consider race, power, wealth, gender, or anything else the system should run on the laws. This is why we have mandatory sentences for specific crimes. I don't care what color you are. Me identifying with you doesn't change your criminal act or your choice to commit that act. But by doing what they suggest and what is being done currently, if Lady Justice was peeking under the blindfold before, wow, they've completely ripped it off of her now, right? But Bias is okay, as long as it's the right kind of bias. And racism is just fine, as long as it's the right kind of racism. And how do you know if it's the right kind? Well, does it get you votes? Finally, the Bible tells us to forgive. We are given the ultimate example of forgiveness by Jesus. And yet nowhere in the Bible does it say that we are to ignore crimes or coddle criminals. The Old Testament, Levitical or Mosaic laws, they were very strict. There were varying degrees of punishment, up to capital punishment, in order to cleanse the land and cleanse the people of the evil of the criminal. I mean, to the point that if you had a rebellious child that refused to get back in line, and, and from my understanding, this isn't like a kid, this is a child of yours that is accountable for their actions, that's breaking the laws, that refuses to repent, you were to take your own child out and stone him. Now, moving into the New Testament era, the stoning has gone away, not capital punishment, just the method of it, but nowhere will you see that the Bible tells us that we should just coddle criminals, that we should blame everything but the criminal, that we should ensure the criminal is made to feel good about themselves. This is a matter of justice. If a crime is committed, we must enact justice. Justice could involve punishment, or it could involve mercy. Both of those are just actions that could be taken. But to categorically say that we will not punish this demographic, you know, based on soft racism, that's not justice. If we blame everything but the criminal, that's just being unjust to those who the blame is being thrust upon, and it's unjust to the criminal because they are not being allowed to feel the weight of their crime. Now, Jesus is our example. 
He has never and will never enact injustice. Those that aren't saved die and go to hell. They will receive justice for their sin. Those that God chooses to grant mercy or grace to are given that grace based on the payment for their sins by the shed blood of Christ. That is also just. If God allowed the unsaved to enter heaven along with the saved, that would be unjust. If God cast the saved into hell with the unsaved, that would be unjust. Now, our system is far from perfect, but it is one of the best systems in the free world. However, in the last few years, we've seen criminals put right back out on the streets, illegal immigrants being allowed to flood the country. We've seen massive riots in locations like Portland go unchecked. We've seen police defunded or severely neutered. We've seen the attempt to use social workers. We've seen the absolute ineffectiveness of gun control, and the list goes on. So looking at the cities and states that are considered Democrat strongholds, looking at the actions that have been taken with Democrats in power with regard to crime, let me ask you, better or worse? Now, I have no idea what the data actually shows, but looking at the news, do things look better or worse? Do the actions being taken in our judicial system, in our police forces, do these actions make sense to you? The Democrats, I believe agents of absolute evil, show once again in their platform that they are all about spending money we don't have, protecting the criminal, excusing the crime while punishing the law enforcers, pushing racist worldviews, psychologically manipulating people, lying about facts, selectively filtering data, all in the names of votes, power, and control. They, in many ways, once again, just shred the Bible and biblical principles in order to gain earthly power. They should not be allowed to promote their evil in this country any longer. They must be voted down. They must be voted out at every turn. If I'm wrong, I'd be interested to hear where I've erred. Just let me know. Now, after this episode, I'll have four more episodes to get through the rest of the platform before Election Day. I'm not sure I'll be able to do that. Some sections will go faster, but the absolute lies and spin is... uh. It's impressive. So I may adjust how I do this to ensure I make it through their platform. Although, like I said, they have a lot of stuff in there that we will be able to move through faster. So we'll just have to see. Just hang with me. Now, on the next episode, we'll take a look at probably their key section in their platform, Healing the Soul of America. The question is, what does the soul of America look like in their eyes? We'll we'll find out next time. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. God bless.